Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I, I, <laughs> there's no other way to say it. I'm fucking great. Wow. <laughs> I know. And it's for a reason that if you told me a week ago, probably closer to two weeks ago, yeah. that this is why I would be excited... I'd be like, you're talking about another person. And you are, because I am a completely different person than I was two weeks ago. Why am I fucking jazzed? And I can say it now, because by the time this airs, it will be old news. New Jersey Devils got knocked out of the playoffs, and I couldn't be happier. (laughs) I didn't see that coming. I thought this was going to be about the hockey cards, but it's still hockey adjacent. The joke is, the hockey cards led to this of course i got so deep in the cards and am still so deep that it turned into like oh i kind of miss watching it and then i mentioned i i don't remember if it was a regular episode or a patreon episode but i mentioned that flyers game that was like five overtimes from like 2000 and i my husband found it for me online i watched every second of it even though i knew There was going to be multiple overtimes of no action. I still watched it. I still put in the time. Uh, It was over the course of several days to the point where my kids would be like, are you still watching that? And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And then that led to, maybe I'll watch something current. And I've watched, today I watched my fifth playoff game in the last three days. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm elbow deep. And- I don't, I'm not a fan of anybody that's left. Um, 
I'm I'm a fan of one team and one team alone, but I uh, I don't care. But it turns out I care deeply because as we get into it further, the the thing that has occurred is the players that I loved and that I remember the most have gone on to have children or nephews who now play in the league. And the very players that I loved are now either like the commentators or the coaches or something. So I see them and I get excited. And the uh, coach for Carolina is a former flyer. And I was very happy for him to get there. And I, I mean, I, I, you ask me, could Thursday work as a record? And I went, yeah. And so I told my husband, hey, heads up, like I'm recording Thursday night. And he goes, oh, okay. And I went, thank God she didn't say Wednesday because that is back-to-back hockey I'd like to see. And he's like, oh, all right. And I'm going to tell you, last night, two games, so violent. (laughs) So violent. Like, more violence than I was anticipating. Sure. I'm in this. I'm in this now. Like, uh, it's so deep that on the break, I'm going to absolutely check the game that's currently playing. And then tonight when you were like, can we push the start time half an hour? What I said to you was, of course, no worries. What I left out was, we're going into overtime. I'd like that. (laughs) Well, I didn't get a response to my next one, which was that I was like, just getting my drinks. And I said drinks because I knew that that would probably get a laugh, if I'm being honest. Didn't Mm -hmm. get a response right away. And I was like, she's into something. Now I know. Yeah. Now I know. Yeah. What I, what it was was me screaming, end it now, end it now, because I overtime makes me stressed out. And it was like, if they score a single goal, New Jersey leaves. And I got so excited when they scored. And then they started showing the New Jersey players. And suddenly it was like, you can rewind the exact moment to where his heart breaks. And it's just, I'm suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> like I, I feel instantly bad because I'm like, oh, they're all heartbroken, and I get it. My team barely makes the playoffs, so I get that they felt they came like they came far, but then, so now I feel bad for for choosing a team. Isn't that gross? I feel I, bad for choosing a team. I don't think you need to feel bad. I think that's normal. I think that's normal. That's like you know when someone loses a partner, they'll love again. <laughs> I I love that you took this from from hockey to to winnowing or yeah. was it just a breakup? No, as opposed to a death. You no, were going no. death. I meant you death. were taking it death because yeah. you know I've often said you know I, we may have talked about this on the show before, but I have told past partners like if I die, I don't want you to find love again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I say it to my husband all the time. Yeah, I was like, but, just so you know, you're done. Yeah, like yeah, never again. Yeah, but. I'm I'm softening on it now, you know, because I don't really. I mean, I sure. feel like maybe that's the thing. Like, I don't know. Like maybe I should go back on that a little bit. I've been single for a while. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, you know. So I I'm mean, like, I don't know look, that I need to be putting down those rules. Like, I won't know. I'll be dead. It's fine. Sure. Do I want him to be happy? Of course. But also. A part of me wants her to spend the rest of her life being like, I'll never live up to her. If I may. Because you won't. In the immortal words of Ashley Simpson. <laughs> Living in the shadow <laughs> of someone else's dream. 
I'm in a band. Of course. Oh, God. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and I, I guarantee the next one with the with the way I've been in the last week, the next one won't be a sports fan, probably. I've been a bit loud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to watch them any other way. I like it. I don't want you to, you shouldn't be quiet. I, sports oh, I, are meant to be loud. It's it's insane how deep I am in this. Now I'm invested. Yeah. So invested. That now I'm up my game and I've ordered myself some hockey cards from the most recent season so I can see the names and the players that I'm no, now so familiar with after watching the playoffs. It's kind of like when you see an opening act, like a band, that's yeah. an opening act, and you're like, oh, I liked them. I'm going to now get their CD or download their album so yep. that then I can familiarize myself with the songs that I heard that night. Yeah. Like we did with the used. Yeah. Great example. We saw them yeah. open for Boxcar Racer. Boxcar we Racer did. being a offshoot of Blink-182. Um, yeah. And uh, we loved them. We did. And I met Bert. We, well, we met. We both met Bert. I almost tackled Bert you in did. the hallway. I got to find did. those photos. We also uh, met them at... Uh, Oh, God. Christy, don't say Edgefest. That's not right. And that's dating Warped yourself. Tour. Thank you so much. We did. Absolutely. That's right. It was Warped pissing tour. rain. Yeah. Because I, I could hear drumming. And I said, someone's drumming back there. And uh, yeah, we he was practicing it. We went back and we, And you know what else is wild? I yeah. also ran into them on the street in Toronto once. They were shooting a music video. They had come outside on a break to like have a cigarette. I ran into them. I have a very grainy picture taken on a yes. very old like flip phone. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was the drummer, because there was a new drummer that came in, right? Oh, when yeah. the original guy went to Rancid, I believe. Oh, that sounds right. So the new drummer put his head on my shoulder when the photo was being taken because they asked my name. I said it was Lauren. And then he's like, hey, Lauren, I'm drunk. I'll never forget it. But what is this? I, here's what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing yeah. is... This has been, that's a trifecta. That's three times for me that I happened upon these men. This is clearly yeah. foreshadowing that one day I would be in a band. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is not the turn I thought that was going to take. But I'm kidding. They're supposed to be in your life somehow. Yeah. That the universe is like, I said these guys. I was and just keeps shoving them back. Impossibly jealous of Kelly Osborne when she was dating. Oh, uh, yeah. Impossibly yeah. jealous. I photoshopped your face on her body and That's photos right. of them together. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah, we <laughs> talked about that a lot. We talked about that a lot. Yeah, that was what we did. That's what you do in the early 2000s. Yeah, when you get a little bit of Photoshop ability. That's that's yeah. what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. What a time. A completely different time. Yeah. I well. mean... I absolutely don't Photoshop like that anymore. No. Which is maybe a shame. I wouldn't mind an item, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Something. Yeah, I Something. get it. Yeah. I'm going to write down Photoshop. <laughs> I'm going to write down Photoshop fun. Photoshop fun. I and love we'll that. see what, uh, we'll see what I, 
what happens when I read that note again and go, what the hell does that mean? I don't know. It's also next to my phone, next to the note I took before we started recording that says pin project question mark. Yep. I love that. Well, listen, very quick update about my music. Um, Of course. Dear listeners, if you are an OG listener, uh, you'll remember early on, I thought, because we, you know, we started out and then, you know, things kind of took on a life of their own. We, we got yeah. an amazing following fairly quickly on the show. And yeah. people were asking early on for merch. This was during the pandemic, obviously. And I and I said, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll just do like a, you know, a merch page. How hard could it be? And what I inadvertently did was I opened an e-commerce business. I went too deep. And when I finally realized I had done way more than was necessary, it was too, I was too far in to turn back. Yeah. That is... The experience, <laughs> the only experience that I can liken, me getting this single released. Here's the thing. I am an intelligent woman. Yeah. But it's, there are so many steps. There are so oh. many steps and and so many things and pieces. And it's just been a, it's been a learning curve. But the good news is, fingers crossed, that the song will be available for pre-sale and pre-download on May 19th. Hey. That's if everything goes well. I've done everything right so far, as far as I can tell. But mm-hmm. the song's mm-hmm. supposed to show up in places it hasn't yet. Now I'm still within the threshold where it's like, give it a few days. But I am, I want you to know, from the moment yeah. I awake... Until the moment that my eyes close and then I lay and toss and turn thinking about it for an hour before I'm able to tucker myself out and fall asleep. All I can think about is, did it go up? Did it go up? Did it go up? Did I do it right? Did I fuck it up? Is it in there? Is it there? And then I'll check and it's not there. Again, we're still within, they say it takes a few days, but I'm just, uh, I've got something called a generalized anxiety disorder, which at times like this is not helpful to the process. So Mm. if all goes well. My my first debut, my debut single, how about that, called Now I Know, is going to be available May 19th. Fingers crossed that all goes well. Again, this episode's coming out May 16th, so yeah, let's hope for the best. Let's I can't best. wait. And yeah. Lord knows, whatever you post, I'm going to repost it. We're going to need to get the, the true crew army together. Yeah. Because, look... Yeah. I'm a 40-year-old single woman, okay? I have a lot of amazing things in my life. I'm not suggesting that I don't. But wouldn't it, and I know I said this before, but I'm just going to say it one more time, wouldn't it be a hoot if I somehow got onto the Billboard charts? And what I'm saying is this, from the research I've done, you don't have to sell that many copies because no one buys music anymore. So, sure. Are you going to get in the top five? No. That's the Adele's, the T-Swift's, those people. But you can get on there. And here's what I have to say to that. Uh-huh. I've priced the song at 99 cents. Normally they're $1.29. But the pre-sale, it's going to be at a discount. And I know what you're thinking. Um, it, look, here's the other thing. I've also sunk a lot of money into this project. So I'm not making money on this, folks. It's This is a, this is a we hope to break even and we'll never be able to scenario. Um, so really for me, it's it's asking people if they'll if they'll support me and buy the song for a for a charts run. That's what this is. That's what this is. You know what I mean? Sure. 
Sure. And what I love is absolutely how almost word for word uh, your uh, speech to the people was uh, Billy Mac from Love Actually. <laughs> and wouldn't it be nice if this Christmas I didn't even real? Oh, my God, it was. That's yeah. the energy I'm channeling right now. And, and what to do for him? Christmas number one. He felt it on his fingers. He felt it on his toes. <laughs> God, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be me cornering you alone, going like, I actually realized that you were the love of my life. But here's the thing: we already knew that. So that's uh that's <laughs> and I would not question it in nope. a in at all. I'd be like, Yep, understood. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm very excited. I'm very nervous. I'm very anxious. I feel a lot of feelings about this project that I've yeah. never felt about anything I've done before. I think there's a vulnerability that comes with music that doesn't come with anything else, or certainly there is for me. It's wild. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like it's just any song. It's something that you wrote. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, that it's like, if I do something that people don't like typically, it's like, whatever. Who cares? But this, it feels like it is your child. Like, it feels like it's sure. like, I birthed this, okay? I yeah. ripped these lyrics out of me. And I'm yeah. presenting them like Rafiki with Simba. And I beg you to be nice. <laughs> yes. You know, it's fine. Of course. Everything's going to be fine. I'll feel better when I've seen it show up. I've seen it populate. Of course. That, then I'll rest. My heart raced last night in bed. It was just like, I've been yep. pushing this thing. I'm on this timeline because I'm throwing this big, you know, industry single release party uh, mm -hmm. to support the single. And I was like, if I cocked this up somehow, if something goes wrong, it's just going to feel like the moment Ralph Wiggum's heart broke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that would go on the soundboard. We look. That's also on the list. So now speaking of lists, I noticed on my yeah. uh, timeline that yeah. Christy creates for me every week. It says you have a small update from a past case. And I'd I like to do. know, what's that all about? Well, thankfully, the water that I spilt on it before we started <laughs> didn't ruin the whole thing, so I can tell you. I love it. Just getting by. This, believe it or not, is an update from episode 34 if you can remember that far back, uh, that episode happened to be released May 18th, 2021. Whoa. And when this releases on the 16th, it'll almost be exactly two years later. But it just feels like a, a synchronicity if yeah. you will, that it came out now. So the episode involved the disappearance of 18-year-old Natalie Holloway. Oh. Who was last seen May 30th, 2005, leaving a nightclub with three men during a high school graduation trip in Aruba. One of those men was Dutch national Joren Vandersloot. Mm -hmm. As of May 2023, no one has been charged in Natalie's disappearance, and her body has still never been found. She was officially declared dead in 2012. But in 2010, Vandersloot... And I'm fairly certain this was all in the episode. I love that it was two years ago, so I 
don't remember two weeks ago. Um, Vandersloot was arrested after 21-year-old Stephanie Flores was found strangled to death in Vandersloot's hotel room in Lima, Peru. He confessed to the murder and was convicted in 2012 and sentenced to 28 years in prison. Well, on this day, on the day of this exact record, which is May 11th, 2023, it was announced that Joran Vandersloot would be extradited to the United States to face charges of extortion and wire fraud against Natalie's mother, Beth Holloway. No. Vandersloot contacted Beth in May 2010 and said he would reveal the location of Natalie's body if Beth paid him $250,000. A sting operation was set up and Beth initially wired $15,000 to an account that Vandersloot had in the Netherlands and he was given an additional $10,000 in person through an attorney. Vandersloot was set to receive the remaining $225,000 once Natalie's remains were found, but when police went to the location that he had given them, no remains were found, and Vandersloot later admitted he had lied about the whole thing. Just 20 days after initially reaching out to Natalie's mother, Vandersloot murdered Stephanie Flores. Wow. Peru has an extradition treaty with the United States and had previously agreed to extradite Vandersloot after he finished serving his current sentence, which wouldn't be until 2038. But now they have agreed to extradite him to the U.S. to face those extortion and fraud charges. After dealing with that, he will be returned to Peru, where he'll finish the remainder of his sentence. And hopefully after that, he can return to the U.S., where he'll spend the rest of his life in prison for toying with a grieving family. And maybe he'll grow a conscience and finally tell the truth about what happened to Natalie in the process. I doubt it, but wouldn't that be nice? Uh, Shout out to uh, dear listener Nadine for bringing that to our attention. Oh, well, I I love that it was brought to our attention. I obviously uh, don't love uh, the the topic. Um, Yeah. Although it is, I love that that Peru is like, okay, you know what? Take him back. Do the case. And then bring him back here. Oh, I need to believe at this point Peru is like, oh my God, fuck this guy. Yeah, uh, take him. Yeah. We'll take him later. Yeah. Wow. Well, hopefully justice is served there because that is Agreed. truly so dark. I can't handle it. Right? Yeah. Especially when you were potentially, like, he was arrested for it, but never officially charged with it. But especially to be that close and be like, look, I'll tell you how she died. I'll tell you where her body is. You just have to pay me an incredible amount. And the thing is, she absolutely would have paid anything to have her daughter back. Of course. But it's also the fact that Natalie has now been missing as long as she was alive. I know. It's horrific. No, it's awful. And I would like that monster i was gonna say man but monster feels more appropriate um i would like him to go down for this and i want him to realize he's in he's just spent so much time in prison just tell her the thing is i'm pretty sure he has he has a kid i think he has a daughter now oh god um well i remember and i apologize i the details that we talked about when we record these episodes, they leave me. 
I don't remember everything. It was but two years ago. It was also two years ago. But, well, yes. you'll love this. But many years before that, I do remember this. <laughs> oh. Um, Once you hit a certain age, anything recent. Oh, I know. It just goes. No. But I remember no. there was someone, and I think you did talk about this in the episode, too. There was someone that did this, like, that did a kind of sting operation type thing where he got Yorin into a vehicle that had been um, outfitted with, like, microphones and cameras and stuff. And he right? did admit to killing her to this guy yep. but then it was inadmissible um yep for you know all the reasons uh and of course it was argued that it was like oh he was lying whatever but like let's take a look at it so he he told someone that he absolutely committed this murder he yep. um extorted the family's the family saying he had done the murders or or at least knew about where she was and then less than three weeks later killed another woman I, I mean, look, I'm not going to say unequivocally because I don't know, but I'm just going to say we got a real profile building here where, you know, yep. you could speculate or allege whatever, wherever you think that may go. It's also such a shame that he just what was that there wasn't the evidence to put him away that first time. Mm -hmm. I'm also always fascinated with like. Where, if you've never done it before, where are you putting a body that it's never found? Ever. That's the one thing. I mean, there's so many things on this show that shock me. But that is honestly, I think, the biggest thing that I could say in the two and a half years we've been doing this show. It never ceases to amaze me how that can happen. And I think that's why some people get brazen. Because you hear these stories of like, and the body was never found. And then I think people are like, well, and then it makes you think. I would love to look at statistics about what are the amount of murders where the body is found versus where they aren't. Oh, Because sure. I bet you that statistically speaking, the number for the bodies not being found, I think it's higher than I ever anticipated. Just when we've done so many of those missing episodes, and of course yeah. we want to believe that maybe some of those people are still alive. Of course, that is that is absolutely what you would want to believe. But we talk about a lot of them too that were so long ago. Um, you know, that chances are, unfortunately, statistically speaking, I'm not trying to be crass, but unfortunately, I think that in many cases it is just that the body was never found, and it's wild to yeah. me. Have you seen the photo? Um, and I'm just assuming it was legit when I saw it. I wasn't planning on bringing it up, so I didn't, like, uh, source it out and check it before this. But there is a photo, I believe it's just of the United States, and it shows all of the mine, all of the mines, like the mine shafts in the United States. And then when you overlay it with a photo of all the areas where people have gone missing, how similar oh, wow. those are, it's horrifying i guess my question is and and this is gonna make me sound like a bit of a dum-dum but i'm like yeah. how does the mine system work are there just so many in i guess what we would call a minefield i guess that that's why we call it a minefield because there's a, a million mines i guess i just feel like you know is it because they get closed off like how are some of these not being found i guess would be my question i'm just assuming they're so deep and most of them just don't get checked anymore. 
Right. Like there have we've done cases where it's people are go to look in them, but then they flood it out so you can't physically get in there, and, or it's too dangerous to get in there. Right. So they just can't. They can't look. Wow. But it's horrifying to think about. It is. It absolutely I, is. I I just I I can't. It's when the body when there's just no sign of it that freaks me out more than yeah. anything. Especially when it's someone who's potentially never done it before. I know. It's like how'd you pull that off on the first time out? And again, are you googling because then tip you would hope that the police would find that out. But then pre-google, people were doing it too. So how does that work? Yeah. But yeah, that's fascinating. That's I mean, it's so interesting that it feels like it's like is is there are these mines across the country just like filled with so many bodies like that's crazy when you think at this point like if we can do something like drones yes that we could do something that could go down into a mine shaft to see if it's worth trying to get in there somehow yeah but i'm assuming it's quite deep again i would have known more if i knew i was gonna bring <laughs> bring this up but Listen, we, yeah. we never know what's going to come up on this show. Um, no. Well, not in this first bit anyway. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then the other one too, I think, is sometimes water. I think water can be more mm -hmm. helpful to disposing of a body than you would think. True. There was, I watched a Dateline the other day. So it's it's all Dateline all day, every day in this house. Anyway, uh, I watched a Dateline the other day and- horror show yep. of a story. Basically, long story short, young gal, like 19, I want to say, ish, um, finds a bunch of money that her deceased mother had been squirreling away for her and the family didn't know. So she finds just this pile of old cash and she wow. tells her closest friend and he plants and kills her. He kills her for the money. Yep. This is a 20-year-old boy. Uh, anyway, he kept saying... And they had put a wire on another teenage boy because this guy had kind of alluded to it. And mm. God bless this second teenage boy who immediately went to the police and was Good like, this him. is a problem. So the police wire him up. And so they have him telling him this whole story, which is so sick on so many levels. And, uh, and he kept saying... That basically what he and an accomplice did was he he killed her in her own home, which is also wild because her parents were just away for the weekend. Again, the layers to this. Anyway, long story short, way too late. Uh, he and an accomplice moved her body to a bridge and threw her off the her body off the bridge and then left her car there to make it look like it was a suicide. But uh, oh. he kept saying he's like, well, her body's probably out in the ocean by now probably out in the ocean by now and she to this day has never been recovered so is oh. there something to that that if you if you know the waterways and you know how the river system works is that possible i mean to me there's a lot of room of a lot of bogeys where that could go wrong but i mean he the joke is he never would have gotten caught if he hadn't ran bragged his mouth. about it if he hadn't bragged about it wow and thank god he did because obviously yes obviously but it's so interesting because, yeah, 
they never I don't think they ever would have um connected it to him if uh if he hadn't bragged about it. So there you go. Anyway. That was a dateline in five minutes for you. How about that? <laughs> hey. I like that segment of the show. I like that too. A dateline in five. Dateline in five? I mean, I could do this every week because right now I could I could recap so many. I watch so many. And sometimes I get angry when I'm scrolling through and I've seen all of them. <laughs> I haven't seen all of them, but again, yeah. you know. Um, D- look, Dateline in five. I Dateline in five. I'm writing it down. I'm write it down. Um, well, it segues beautifully into the fact that we're talking about a Dateline on this entire episode of the show, which I could not be more jazzed about because I pitched this to Christy <laughs> I, like two weeks ago and then she looked it up and she was like, yeah, we're in. Um or she had maybe pitched it to me and I had happened to watch it that same day. Like it was just a kismet moment, which I loved. But yes. before we get into that, I got to ask you what you drinking over there. Oh, uh, I, I'm still with the Mike's Lime. I love that for you. Yeah. yeah that makes me happy. I have got a, a speedball going, which for those hey. who uh, I haven't done one of these in a while. Diet Coke. I got a, I got a Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. I got a high noon. And then I got a water, which is nice. But I want to just say uh, watermelon sugar high noon. Come on. <laughs> High noon. That is, you partner with Harry Styles. I don't know what else to say or just license the song. There's also parody laws. Look, to call us because that's brilliant. I mean, if Weird Al can parody. Thank you very much. Watermelon sugar high noon. Watermelon sugar high noon. Like it just and writes itself. There, aren't there also Kiwi high noons? Hell yes. There's Black Cherry. Oh, I was just meaning because he has a song, Kiwi. He also has a song called Cherry. Okay. Well, I guess, yes, I wasn't thinking. He loves Black Cherry, but. He loves fruit. Anyway, um, (laughs) all I'm saying is that's a missed opportunity, if not jumped upon. Yes. Oh, 100%. Now, listen, we're, of course, covering a Dateline episode that aired very recently called uh, Dateline Dead Man Talking. This aired. April 22nd, 2023, and it grabbed me when I watched it. Mm-hmm. it I, I can't wait for us to get into it. Uh, but for those of you who aren't uh, familiar, oh, God, she usually she usually does a little, um, you do a little phonetic usually when pronouncing a hard last name for me. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> Alivarian? I guess, I, guess, I guess you'll love this. I assumed I didn't need to because I, I knew you watched just the episode. Watched it. But yeah. again, I if you think I didn't have to write it, Phonetically for myself throughout this because I kept forgetting. Uh, I've been saying Aliverdian. Aliverdian. Wonderful. Yeah. Aliverdian. Fantastic. Well, here we yeah. go. For those of you who aren't familiar, <laughs> I'm going to get you up to speed right now. In 2019, Nicholas, Nicholas Aliverdian, is that how you say it? Doing great. Great. Yep. Was wanted by multiple law enforcement agencies for fraud and sexual assault. Months later, he passed away after a brief battle with cancer. Or did he? Nearly two years later, Aliverdian was discovered living in Scotland under the alias Arthur Knight. But Arthur denies any knowledge of Nicholas and claims that the whole thing is just one big case of mistaken identity. So, is Arthur Knight really Nicholas Aliverdian, or is Arthur being used as a scapegoat for another man's crimes? Join us for a case with unbelievable twists that feels like the plot to every single Lifetime movie all rolled into one. Is he a con man running from the truth? Or is there a cover-up to make an example out of an innocent man? Christy Oxborough investigates. Spoiler, 
It's not the latter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also going to get pretty heated in this episode. This episode, it turns out, uh, while I was making notes, uh, struck a chord. There's no way to say it. Yeah, there's no way to say it other than it really struck a chord. But I can't wait. Ah, so, disclaimer. This episode will contain mentions of sexual assault, suicide, and intimate partner violence. So trigger warning for those who need it. Nicholas Alaverdian was born July 11th, 1987, outside of Providence, Rhode Island. His parents, Jack Alaverdian and Diana DeFilippo, had married in April 1984 when they were 29 and 20, respectively. The couple had three children. Nicholas in July 1987, Joseph in June 1989, and Deandra in December 1990. Jack was known to be a violent and angry man. He had convictions for domestic assault, writing fraudulent checks, violating a restraining order, selling cocaine, and obtaining money under false pretenses. Yowza. According, oh yeah. According to Nicholas, Diana got a restraining order against Jack and took the kids into hiding before they inevitably divorced. Nicholas said his mother was unable to care for her children, and they were all eventually placed in foster homes. Nicholas later claimed he was physically and sexually assaulted throughout his time in foster care. But Nicholas was determined to make something of himself, so he started hanging around the courthouse where he was made a page at just 14 years old. He ran errands for various local politicians who were impressed with Nicholas's intelligence and work ethic. He was described as a clean-cut boy who was helpful and courteous. Some of the politicians were so moved by Nicholas's story of the horrors of foster care that they worked on legislation to reform the child welfare system. Nicholas, who had become the face of the legislation, was set to give a press conference about it in 2002, but he never showed. In fact, it seemed as though he disappeared entirely. In reality, a judge had sent 15-year-old Nicholas to an out-of-state foster care facility. Over the next few years, Nicholas ended up in facilities in Florida, Nebraska, and Ohio. Nicholas later described the time as, quote, No cotton candy with swirling teacup rides and exhilarating jaunts down Splash Mountain. You would have been met with punches and kicks and sexual assault and fecal matter thrown at you. Nicholas claimed the only reason he was sent out of state to begin with was because the politicians in Rhode Island wanted to punish him for trying to speak out about the abuse he had suffered. He said, quote, I was exiled because I was becoming a political and publicity threat. Nicholas eventually aged out of the system and went on to attend college. He returned to Rhode Island in early 2011 as a child welfare activist, giving interviews in which he compared foster homes to Guantanamo Bay. Nicholas became the driving force behind three bills in legislature, including one to completely restructure the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, or DCYF, one that would prohibit Rhode Island from using out-of-state foster care facilities, and one that would establish a Children's Bill of Rights. Nicholas also filed a lawsuit against DCYF, naming 18 individuals who he claimed allowed the abuse he suffered throughout his time in foster care to continue. DCYF said that it had no documented evidence of substantiated abuse regarding Nicholas, 
but in August 2013, they settled the case out of court. They agreed to waive Nicholas's debt of nearly $207,000, and they paid him $70,000. It seemed like Nicholas was heading for a political career that he had been working towards when he disappeared again in late 2013. Then in late 2019, Nicholas reached out to the media to announce he'd been diagnosed with late-stage non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and he had just weeks to live. He died less than two months later, on February 29th, 2020. Nicholas Alaverdian was described as tenacious, charismatic, engaging. He was also described as being like Donald Trump before he was president, always willing to give a quote to any journalist who would listen. And spoiler alert, Nicholas was a lot more like Trump than people realized at the time. But you will uh, see the similarities more later on. Uh, so my lights are going out <laughs> over oh. here in this weird, like, am I losing power? I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, if if you disappear, I'll call <laughs> you back. Yeah, you'll, you'll know where I am. I'm somewhere. But Is there a storm? Nope. I mean, it was kind of like drizzly today, but we didn't get anything like this. But yeah, that's okay. It's fine. It only happened twice. It's I'm fine. So sorry. And of course, are we going to edit this out? Never. Never. It's not what we do. This is what we do. So, according to his obituary, which was posted on Nicholas's official website, Nicholas, and I quote, did the unthinkable. And was admitted to and became an alum of Harvard University, the most peaceful and intellectually invigorating four years of his life, aside from the past four years with his young, loving family, including his beloved wife and cherished, cherished children. Nicholas's wife and children were not named in the obituary, although his aunts and uncle or his uncles and his cousins were. His parents also weren't mentioned at all, despite both being alive at the time. Uh, and I'm sure that means nothing, but I'm just suspicious. Yeah. The obituary was very, very long. But there's one portion I'm going to share with you. Uh, you may be familiar if you've seen the dateline because they also thought it was most the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard. So they felt to share it as well. <laughs> uh, again, this is a real obituary that someone posted. Quote, at the bedside were Mrs. Alaverdian their two children, and extended family. His last words were, fear not, and run towards the bliss of the sun. <laughs> At the time of his passing, the room was filled with the sounds of the end credits for the 1997 film Contact by composer Al Alan Silvestri, a film and score which held special meaning for Mr. Aliverdian. A memorial mass was set to be held at Our Lady of Mercy Catholic Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. A woman claiming to be Nicholas's widow, Louise, did all the planning through email and over the phone as she was living in Switzerland at the time. Louise gave a very specific list of music that needed to be played during the memorial, as well as a list of elected officials who were expected to speak during the service. But before the memorial occurred, it was canceled after Father Healy received a phone call from the police stating that Nicholas Alaverdian was not, in fact, dead. 
And Nicholas faking his own death means that I am absolutely now officially allowed to make fun of that obituary, which he clearly wrote himself. So I'll (laughs) say it. That bit about listening to the soundtrack from the movie Contact is so beyond ridiculous that I just can't. And it's one of the many details of this story that are so incredibly random and so incredibly specific that my brain just cannot comprehend that it's actually happening. So since Nicholas faked his own death, that leads to two questions. One, why would he fake his own death? And two, what else has he lied about? So to answer both questions, we're going to go back to the beginning. Jack Alaverdian and Diana Filippo were married in April 1984. They had three children, Nicholas in July 1987, Joseph in June 1989, and Deandra in December 1990. Jack was violent and had a long list of criminal convictions. His brother described him as a psychopath with a violent temper who allegedly killed the family dog in front of his children and physically assaulted multiple women. He left the family before Deandra was born. Heartbreaking side note. On May 23, 1979, Diana's 13-year-old brother, Nicky, was found hanging from a noose in the family's basement. Prior to his death, Nicky had watched The Tonight Show, which featured the guest Dar Robinson, a professional stuntman. It was announced on the show that Robinson would hang the show's host, Johnny Carson, as a stunt. In October of that year, Nikki's family filed a complaint against NBC in the Superior Court, alleging that Nikki had watched the stunt and tried to imitate it. They claimed NBC uh, was negligent and failed to adequately warn and inform of the dangers of that program. In June 1980, the court ruled that NBC was not at fault for Nikki's death. So with Jack gone... Diana started waitressing to provide for her family. While working at a local restaurant in 1994, Diana met David Rossi, who was an Engelbert Humperdinck impersonator. Yet another detail that was so random and yet so specific. For those of a different generation, Engelbert was a British pop singer who hit the big time in 1967 with the song Release Me. Other hits include Spanish Eyes, There Goes My Everything, and A Man Without Love. He has earned four Grammy nominations, 63 gold records, and 24 platinum records. Fun fact, Engelbert represented the UK in the Eurovision Song Contest in 2012. There you go. And for those who are wondering, because I I certainly was, Engelbert was born Arnold George Dorsey, and he adopted the stage name Engelbert Humperdinck after the German composer of the same name. So yes, Engelbert Humperdinck was chosen on purpose. I was just going to say to choose the last name Humperdinck. Humperdinck. I'm going to be yeah. honest, that's got some big dick energy because you got to be really confident <laughs> if that's what you're coming out of the gate with, you know? That's a great point. I could not fathom why. The thing that drives me the most crazy is it's not spelt like you think. No. And that drives me wild. But one of the small things in this that drive me wild, because we haven't even seen me heated yet. So, David and Diana date for a couple of years before getting married in 1996 in the gardens of the West Valley Inn near Providence. Nicholas, who was nine years old at the time, served as ring bearer. 
The couple settled in Rhode Island, and David legally adopted Diana's children. The family seemed happy at the beginning, but things soon started to fall apart. According to David, the kids destroyed his apartment, and when he asked Diana how she usually controlled them, Diana allegedly responded, quote, medications, and just keep them in the house. Oh my god. But of the three children, David says that Nicholas was by far the worst behaved, as he, quote, just wouldn't listen in school, he hit the mother, hit the grandmother all the time, hit his siblings, I used to have to hold him down and he'd be spitting at me, he was wicked. David said that Nicholas was out of control and he would physically assault his siblings, his mother, and other kids at school. And while he had a violent temper, Nicholas was also incredibly intelligent and would threaten, quote, I'll get on my computer and ruin your life in five minutes. Wow. Which will come into play later in our story. Nicholas would also scream, fight, and spit in David's face. It got to the point where they installed three locks on Nicholas's bedroom door so he couldn't get out. Feeling they were unable to handle the situation, Nicholas's parents had him institutionalized on three separate occasions, but nothing seemed to work. During a family trip to Disney World in 1999, David said after witnessing Nicholas hit Diana, David just snapped. He said, quote, I broke his nose his jaw, and his teeth. I'm not happy about what I did. David was charged with child abuse, but the charges were dropped after the police learned of Nicholas's violent history. I find it interesting that this event took place at Disney World, and just a few years later, while writing his memoirs, Nicholas compared foster care to, quote, no cotton candy with swirling teacup rides and exhilarating jaunts down Splash Mountain. Which, of course, are clearly references to Disney World. It's also very telling of Nicholas's personality that he was writing something he called his memoirs at the age of 15. Yeah. It just feels very pretentious to me. But I have more examples of pretentious coming up. (laughs) We aren't done with that. So shortly after Disney World, Nicholas, who was just 12 at the time, was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. In January 2000, he was put into the foster system where he became a ward of the state. David walked out of the family. He and Diana officially divorced in 2003. Nicholas was placed in a different group homes over the next few years before aging out of the system in 2005 at the age of 18. A year later, an older couple in Ohio took Nicholas in and acted as his foster parents. That same year, Nicholas, who was going by Nicholas Rossi at the time, met a college sophomore on Facebook. The woman, who wished to remain anonymous, said, quote, Everything just seems so perfect. He was super gentlemanly, very well-spoken, super kind, and everything like that. He was fun to talk to. I know now that everything he did was incredibly scripted and out of a playbook. Scripted, like the time that Nicholas accidentally forwarded the woman an email that included a copy of his acceptance letter to Harvard, which is a very smooth way to humble brag, but the legitimacy of that acceptance letter has been called into question. Right. 
Nicholas and the woman decided to meet in person, so he took a train to see her in Massachusetts. When she picked him up at the station, she said he came on very strong by forcefully kissing her. They stopped at a restaurant for dinner before heading to the woman's dorm room to watch the movie Garden State. The woman said, quote, he kept pressuring me for sex, saying things like, oh, I just spent so long on the train, just like guilting me, basically. And I was just trying to play it off. I said, no, I refused. I was like, I don't want this. And he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't let it go. It got to the point where I was sick of hearing it from him. And then I very specifically remember he threatened me. He said something like, you're going to regret it if you don't. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I don't want to find out what that means. The next thing the woman knew, Nicholas was on top of her, sexually assaulting her. She said the next morning she dropped him off in Providence on her way home to visit her family. She didn't report the attack to the police as she was worried that she would either wouldn't be believed or worse, that she'd be blamed for it. And honestly, with the way sexual assault victims tend to be treated, I am not surprised she chose to stay silent. She said she sent Nicholas a message on Facebook that read, You raped me? It's not okay. And then she blocked him. A few weeks later, she ran into Nicholas while out on the town, say, and he said to her, quote, or she said, rather, he looked at me, we locked eyes, and he said, quote, You're not even going to say hi to me? Wow. Which is unbelievably gross, but unbelievably gross is Nicholas in a nutshell. (laughs) And in January 2008, Nicholas met another college co-ed online while both were attending Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio. 20-year-old Nicholas reached out to 18-year-old Mary Grabinski on MySpace. He told her he was new to the area and looking to make some friends. Mary clearly stated she had a boyfriend, but she was open to something platonic. So Mary and Nicholas chatted occasionally and eventually agreed to meet at the school cafeteria. Both each brought a friend with them. And hey, that was the move. Bring a friend with you? Couldn't be happier that that was the move. Mary said, quote, we had a nice conversation. He was kind. He had big dreams. He was telling me how he wanted to be a lawyer. He wanted to write books. I didn't feel like he was pressuring me into anything romantic. Afterward, Nicholas asked if he could walk Mary to her next class where she had an exam. She agreed. They entered a building and walked down a stairwell to get to the basement where Mary's class was located. Once they got to the stairwell, Nicholas pinned Mary against the wall. She said, quote, He turned into a different person. He was forcibly kissing me, hands up my shirt, hands down my pants, hands inside of me. Mary tried to push Nicholas off her, but he wouldn't stop. Mary said, quote, I honestly thought he was either going to rape me or rape me and kill me. I met him like an hour ago and it went from zero to a hundred real quick. I apologize for the graphic nature of this next sentence, but while groping Mary, Nicholas masturbated before ejaculating onto the wall behind her. During the assault, Mary attempted to get away, and Nicholas said things like, quote, I'm almost done. Don't be a bitch. Jesus Christ. And to that I say, nice and loud for the people in the back. Women are not here to serve your entitled ass. No one owes you anything, especially sex. Nope. You pompous fucking ass. Again, I'm going to get worse about this guy before we're done. 
and he deserves it. Mary managed to get free and run to her class, where she somehow managed to take that exam. Kudos to her for being able to function after the horror show that just happened to her. Quick aside, just 15 days before this incident, Nicholas allegedly sexually assaulted another woman who chose not to report the attack. No shade to her for that, because again, authorities have historically been bad at responding to victims. Yes. So after Mary's exam was done, she found Nicholas waiting for her in the hallway. He apologized profusely and begged her not to tell anyone what had happened. But Mary made the brave move to go to the campus police. And kudos to her for that, because without that move, we would not be talking about that case today. So Mary goes to the campus police. They send her to a prosecutor's office, who in turn tell her there is not enough evidence to charge Nicholas with anything. Then Mary learns that Nicholas has filed a report about her claiming that Mary was the aggressor in the situation. Nicholas was soon charged with public indecency and sexual imposition, which is sexual contact against a person's will. He pleaded not guilty, and the case went to trial. Now, we are not going to get into the little details of the trial because we have a lot of ground to cover today, but just know the defense basically called Mary a liar and blamed her for the entire incident, which again is why victims don't tend to come forward. In March 2008, Nicholas was found guilty on both counts. He was given no jail time. And part of me wonders if that's because he showed up in court with a cane and a sudden, possibly fake, limp. <laughs> oh my God. Allegedly. Uh, the judge sentenced Nicholas to pay a fine, attend a sex offender rehab program, and register as a sex offender for 15 years. Because of that, Nicholas's DNA and fingerprints were taken and added to a national database of sex offenders, which will come into play later in our story. Months later, Nicholas said he had new evidence that would prove he was innocent, and a judge reopened the case. What was the evidence? Nicholas claimed he found a MySpace blog post allegedly written by a drunken Mary claiming the sex between her and Nicholas was consensual. The post, which was written to Mary's boyfriend at the time, said, quote, I went so far by lying and getting some stranger to go to jail and in legal so you wouldn't think I would cheat on you even when I did slip because he was cute. Oh, my. God. Nicholas, sir. Oh, sir. Sir. Uh, and before anyone says, well, maybe Mary did write it. I remind you that Nicholas's stepfather described Nicholas as highly intelligent. And that when he was younger, he would threaten people saying, I'll get on my computer and ruin your life in five minutes. Yeah. A forensic expert proved the post was fake. And a judge agreed and the case was closed. But Nicholas couldn't let it go. So he sued both the prosecutors and Mary for defamation and mental distress. Oh, please. And it enrages me that this punk ass thinks that him violating a woman has caused him any distress. You violated her, sir, and then forced her to go through a trial where she was shamed and called a liar. In this particular situation, you don't know mental distress, Nicholas. Oh, I'm going to get spicy about this. I love it. Before it's done. Uh, both lawsuits were eventually dismissed 
Nicholas also allegedly cyber-stalked Mary. He posted photos and articles about her on a pro-man website called A Voice for Men. Oh, boy. He posted photos of her house as well as a map with her address. The case was eventually thrown out and Nicholas was ordered to pay Mary's legal fees. Months after his attack on Mary, Nicholas met a 26-year-old woman online. Nicholas met the woman, known simply as M.S., in person in November 2008 in Utah. The two dated for about two months. M.S. said that Nicholas was seemed nice and smart and interesting, but he was manipulative and he convinced her to lend him money. Nicholas allegedly told M.S. that he wanted to marry her, and the next month, he locked her in a bedroom where he sexually assaulted her. Oh, my God. She said he was also verbally and emotionally abusive as well. That same year, Utah authorities claimed that Nicholas also sexually assaulted a 21-year-old woman in Orem, Utah. Nicholas allegedly lured the woman back to his apartment, claiming he would pay her back money that he owed her. And this is a pattern that you will notice as the Nicholas story continues. He meets a woman. He love bombs her, suggests marriage within a month or two of meeting, then borrows money from her with seemingly no plan to ever pay it back, and then he gets violent with her. Between March 2010 and May 2011, four women accused Nicholas of sexually assaulting them, threatening them, and one even made claims that he kidnapped her. One woman claimed that after meeting on a dating site, Nicholas demanded sex, which the woman refused, and which is her right to do so. Uh, then, according to the Pawtucket police file, Nicholas forced the woman to go to an ATM and withdraw $400 before forcing her to sign a document that stated she would not take any legal action against him. Nicholas filmed the woman while she was signing the document, which also stated the money that she was giving him was for therapy, which he required due to the woman's violent actions and sex addiction. Stop. Another woman in 2010 claimed that Nicholas abducted her when they met on Craigslist. He continually pushed her to have sex, which she declined. He then allegedly threatened to take his own life by stabbing himself in the chest if she ever told anyone what happened. Police took Nicholas in for a psychiatric evaluation. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, you know what? I think maybe, you know what, boys? It was about time. It was yeah. about time. Dear listeners, uh, there's been a been a bit of a glitch. Um, this is unprecedented. This is true crime and cocktails history. We've never had this happen. While we were recording last night, Christy lost power for many, many, many hours. Yep. Uh, so we did have to put a pause. Now, many would say, why not go back to the beginning? Start over on the episode. It's not what we do here. It's never been what no. we do. Um, we never edit anything out. So uh, apologies for this blip. But we're going to get right back into it now. Um I believe uh, we were in a just a well complete horror show at the time. Um, so uh, please, uh, dear Christy, give us uh, give us some more about this pure monster that we're learning about piece by piece. Well done. Thank you. By the way, I mean, you should podcast for a living. <laughs> I've, you know, I've heard that. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. Ah, so I'm just glad other people are seeing what we see. So. Uh, most of the women who filed complaints eventually dropped them out of fear. One of the victims was Nicholas's first wife. 
What? Because Dateline talked about two wives. Today, baby, I'm bringing you three. Oh, come on. That's the Christy Oxborough <laughs> touch. It is. Look, let's just call it like it is. It is. So, according to the Cinemaholic, Nicholas got married in November 2010 to a single mother who wished to remain anonymous. On November 12, 2010, police responded to a domestic call at Nicholas's apartment where they discovered his wife with redness on her neck and abrasions on her face. She said that Nicholas had become enraged because the woman's infant son wouldn't stop crying. So Nicholas allegedly threw his wife to the floor and physically assaulted her. At this point, they had been married just a week. Oh, boy. Nicholas was arrested and officers had to pick him up and physically carry him out of the house because Nicholas just refused to move. Oh, my God. When placed in the police car, Nicholas repeatedly banged his head on the bars and the officers had to use pepper spray to calm him down. Wow. Yeah. Nicholas pleaded no contest to domestic assault, domestic disorderly conduct, and resisting arrest. He was given probation. So I can only assume the judge didn't bother to take a look at Nicholas's violent history uh, or take any of that into consideration when choosing a sentence. Nicholas's wife filed for divorce six months after they were married um, due to Nicholas being, quote, unexpected and terrifyingly toxic and controlling nature. Bean! <laughs> at one Sorry. point... No, no. This is, again... Unprecedented time call for squeezing in a record when you don't plan to. <laughs> yeah. Because again, to your point, we could record the full hour again. Sure. We don't have the time. We it's don't. Not, it's not we don't. Us, but we also just don't have the time. And you can't recreate the magic. Like mm. once, to quote the late great Johnny Cash, once my song is sung, my song is sung. And I believe that to be true. We can't go back and recreate that. How could we? No. No. It would feel disingenuous, and that's not our spirit. It's not what we do here. So instead, you're going to get randomness like this throughout the rest of this. And me oh. shouting at Bean, who's like a nosy neighbor, <laughs> peeking out the window, <laughs> alerting me to every goings-on out there. Of yeah. course. Protecting the home. She is. Protecting the home. Uh, so at one point, uh, Nicholas's wife had a restraining order against him, which he violated in the spring of 2011 when he was arrested for calling and harassing her. Nicholas then changed his surname back to Aliverdian, and he filed a lawsuit against the Rhode Island Department of Children, Youth, Families, uh, or DCYF, which is something I mentioned earlier. Uh, while the state denied any evidence that Nicholas had been abused, they did settle out of court. But back in 2012, Nicholas decided that suing DCYF wasn't enough, and he decided to sue Mary Grabinski again because Mary's now husband called Nicholas crazy in an online blog. Oh, boy. But we all know that psychologist hat. He won't leave Mary alone simply because she defeated him in court and he can't handle losing to a woman. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You'll notice there are a lot more of those in this episode than most because he has proven time and time again that he will sue anybody if it's litigious. Seems right. He is a litigious one. However, in this respect, 
he'd have to admit to being Nicholas Aliverdian first. Great point. We'll see. We'll see. But Nicholas uh, lost the case against Mary and again was ordered to pay her legal fees. He then sued Mary a year later, claiming that she had subjected him to, and I quote, five years of unjust legal terror. My dude, you're the one who keeps suing her. You are causing your own legal terror. The call is coming from inside the house. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. This man infuriates me. And yes, I do literally have the words, my dude, written in these notes. I love that. <laughs> Just because I'm so over him and how frustrating he is. So in a 2014 essay that was published in a men's rights magazine, Nicholas described the incident between him and Mary as his own personal 9-11. Oh, boy. He said, and I quote, Her acts are tantamount to flying planes into my twin pillars of personal success and service. My goals and aspirations crumbled to the earth, amassing a huge heap of rubble. What a pompous fucking ass. What a pompous ass. He is. I'm sorry, but... Pillars of personal success? Where? <laughs> I, I've looked into your background. I haven't seen success yet. No. Successfully admitting you're not who you say you are. A hundred percent. Allegedly. <laughs> Anyhow. This is chaos. <laughs> We're doing great. Uh, during his legal fights with Mary, Nicholas returned to Rhode Island around 2009 with a sudden crusade to change the foster system. He reinvented himself as a child's wel child welfare advocate, where he attended fundraisers, lobbied politicians, and was a familiar face at the Senate and the governor's office. And then in late 2013, Nicholas left the state without a word to those he was working with. His whereabouts at the time were unknown. Wowzer. Gosh, we're, we're just scratching the surface and it's already truly batshit. Um, yep. yep. But dear listeners, it's time for a break. So hit the can, grab a drink, and we're going to be right back with more on this Dateline, Dateline Dead Man Talking episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Dateline episode, Dead Man Talking. Uh, before the break, obviously, we were getting into just what a goon this man is. Uh, what do we got now? Thank you for your usage of goon, by the You're way. You're welcome. I did not see that coming. So, by 2015, Nicholas was back living with his former foster parents in Dayton, Ohio, and going by the surname Aliverdian. And now Nicholas had traded in his crusade to change the foster care system and replaced it with the mission to revitalize downtown Dayton with his nonprofit called Community Progress Institute. In August of that year, Nicholas met Catherine Heckendorn at a single event at the local LDS church in Riverside. And the moment that I heard that they met, specifically an LDS singles event, I immediately knew Nicholas was just looking for his next victim. And while that may seem wild of me to say, Nicholas was described by many as a devout Roman Catholic. So why would he attend a Mormon church? While there are similarities between the two religions, there are also major differences. I don't have time to get into it all deeply. But I mean, there are differences in how both religions define hell what they believe happens in the afterlife, and even differences in the concept of the Holy Trinity. And while one could argue there wasn't a Catholic church in Riverside, Ohio at the time, I can say there was. (laughs) I looked it up. And maybe he was looking to broaden himself and look into other faiths. I doubt it. My point here is, it seems sketchy to me because he's a sketchy little weasel. Allegedly. <laughs> a sketchy little weasel. I like that you're saying that allegedly he's a little weasel. I think that that's, that's just an opinion and you're allowed to have it. Well, that's the um, thing. He's, he's been no, he hit, he's too quick to hit the sue button. And yeah. I don't need that. No, I get that. I will say too that it's one thing if you're interested in maybe learning about another religion. I don't yep. know that that you would do that by your first thing event. being a singles event. Yep. Now I know you could say, Lauren, you don't know that he was going to anything before that, but I'm alleging that he didn't. Because he's a sketchy little weasel, allegedly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, look, uh, this guy has infuriated me so much. So much. Like, I get why we're here uh, for this. But. So Nicholas meets Catherine, a woman who has just gone through a traumatic experience with another man. Nicholas introduces himself as a Harvard graduate, which he absolutely was not. <laughs> People who met him said he often wore shirts and ties with Harvard's logo on it, but it turns out he only took a comparative literature class at a Harvard Extension School in 2012, not at the university itself, but rather an adult education college where anyone can take classes. So he absolutely did not go to Harvard or especially graduate from there. But after dating Catherine for two months... Nicholas suggested that they get married. The following day, on October 14th, they were married at the courthouse. But after the wedding, Nicholas became controlling and physically abusive. He wouldn't let Catherine work and told her her only job now was to cook and clean. Catherine says, quote, The day after we got married, he hit me. It was something to do with the kitchen. I don't remember exactly what it was, but that was the first time. Then it got worse and worse with the control, putting boundaries on what I could do, how I was supposed to dress. It had to be skirts with pantyhose and who I could see. 
She said Nicholas had a taste for the finer things and would use Catherine's savings to pay for it. He bought fancy clothes, expensive meals, always flew first class, stayed in five-star hotels. He also used some of Catherine's money to fund his nonprofit, which he told her would collapse without the money and therefore it would be her fault if she didn't. uh, But I also love that he also wouldn't let her work. So it's also like... So you're taking her savings and being like, yep. this is all on your shoulders, but you can't work to make more of it. That's ridiculous. A hundred percent. Thing is, Nicholas was also using the nonprofit to rip off schools and students. Of course. He, he claimed there was a $5,000 scholarship to be won and applicants had to pay $40 to apply for it. However, there was no scholarship and any, mov- any money given to the nonprofit was just used by Nicholas to fund his lavish lifestyle. Nicholas also allegedly became abusive. During arguments, he would lock Catherine in the bathroom, sometimes for two days at a time. He said it was all Catherine's fault because that's what abusers do. He also forced himself on her, even after she told him no. Catherine managed to record a fight where Nicholas was screaming at her, and thankfully she was able to use it to get a restraining order against him, which he, of course, violated. Nicholas was verbally, physically, and sexually abusive towards Catherine, who filed for divorce seven months later. It took a long time for their divorce to be settled, as Nicholas wore disguises to avoid being served with papers, and then outright refused to show up in court. A judge found Nicholas guilty of gross neglect of duty and extreme cruelty, and he was ordered to pay Catherine the $52,000 that he had taken from her, as well as an additional $7,800 for back support. According to the Providence Journal, Nicholas has yet to pay that debt. After Nicholas moved out, Catherine found his handwritten journals in their basement, In the journals were details of women that Nicholas had allegedly been watching while in college, including a list of each woman's likes and dislikes, as well as their daily school schedules. That's chilling. And just so fucking gross. Not even allegedly. Outright gross (laughs) is what I'm saying. Uh, Just when you think this man can't get creepier or more pathetic, he does. I have a very dislike for this gentleman. Yes. So less than a month after their divorce was finalized in May 2016, Catherine received a call from the FBI who told her they were investigating Nicholas for fraud. It turns out Nicholas had opened a series of credit cards under the names of the foster parents who so lovingly took Nicholas into their home, not once, but twice. It is estimated he took out 22 credit cards and racked up a debt of over $200,000. At some point, Nicholas was questioned by police about some of the previous sexual assault. Nicholas said it was impossible for him to be a rapist. He had an operation as a child, and because of it, he struggled to perform sexually. What? (laughs) This This is a quote from Nicholas. I'm really kind of sensitive about my body because, you know, when I was a baby, I had testicular cancer and had to remove one of my testicles. So, you know, I'm not exactly trying to have sex with as many people as I can. From the best I can tell, 
Even as a child, this man has never had cancer. Never. I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say, like, you can lose a ball and still have sex. I, I mean, I, I, I'm I, assuming because, I mean, we don't need to get into this, but, like, I don't think that that's just, like, the nail in the coffin that it's like you'll never have sex again. Correct. Just, again, lies. Full of lies. Uh, another outright quote from him. I'm scared of sex, okay? I'm not the type of person to violently violate somebody else's personal space, okay? But according to his conviction in March 2008, he absolutely is the type of person to do that. Anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Nicholas returned to Rhode Island in 2016, where he tried to jump back into the political ring as though no time had passed at all. However, time had passed, and the politicians who were once on his side were now wary of him. Suddenly, the people who had previously backed his bills were no longer interested in anything Nicholas had to say. While in Rhode Island, Nicholas lived with a roommate who filed a restraining order alleging that Nicholas had forged checks from his roommate's account. Nicholas also refused to vacate the house after he was told to leave. And speaking of things Nicholas refused to do, he also failed to register as a sex offender, which was a condition of that conviction from 2008. That move got Nicholas put on Rhode Island's most wanted list. So in typical Nicholas fashion, he skipped town again. And on June 4th, 2017, he flew to Dublin, Ireland on American Airlines Flight 290. Soon after he arrived, Nicholas went to England to meet a woman he met on OkCupid. The woman, who only wanted to go by her first name, Michelle, was a food blogger from Essex. Michelle said after they met, Nicholas moved in with her and stayed for five weeks. She said, quote, From the moment he walked in, he psychologically and emotionally wore me down. Within days, he was talking about getting married and doing calculations about how long it would take him to get his residency. Michelle said that Nicholas sexually assaulted her and spent 3,600 pounds of her savings, which is equivalent to about 4,500 U.S. dollars. She tried to break up with him, saying, quote, It happened within five days of him being there. When I tried to get rid of him, it was a pity party. He was crying, turning the tables on me, saying I was the culprit. He was the victim. He's not a reasonable person. In July of that year, Michelle had to change the locks on her own house, just to keep Nicholas out. Nicholas, of course, then threatened to sue her. Because that's just what he does. <laughs> that's what he does. And while Nicholas was in Europe, things were heating up for him in the United States. By 2019, the FBI were looking into him over fraud charges, and U.S. Marshals were looking to locate him as his address was no longer accurate, which went against the conditions of him being a sex offender. So with various law enforcement agencies looking for him, Nicholas did the most Nicholas thing ever and contacted the media, claiming he'd been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. A journalist from the Providence Journal offered to go with Nicholas to one of his treatments and interview him there. But Nicholas refused, mainly because there was no treatment happening. Also, well, I mean, because there was no cancer. And to be clear... Faking cancer, or any major illness for that matter, is despicable and lame. I'll say it for what it is. Yeah. Uh, the journalist realized something was off with Nicholas's claims, 
so the Providence Journal refused to run the bogus story. When Nicholas spoke with the journalist, he refused to give his location. And why? Because of Utah District Attorney David Levitt. David got into office in 2008 and noticed there were a lot of rape kits from hundreds of past cases that had not been tested yet. So David had the kits tested as part of the Utah Sex Assault Kit Initiative. In 2018, one test came back with a match to the registered sex offender, Nicholas Rossi, a.k.a. Nicholas Alaverdian. By the time authorities wanted to arrest Nicholas on charges of first-degree rape, they couldn't locate him. Then Nicholas's personal website posted his ridiculous obituary, which, let's call it for what it is, full of lies. So I'm just going to quickly point out the lies in his obituary. Uh, The most obvious one, despite what the obituary claims, Nicholas Alaverdian was not dead. (laughs) Biggest lie. Uh, Police have never been able to find any proof of any sort of death certificate. Secondly, Nicholas Alaverdian had no children and was not married at the time of his death. The obituary claimed he was one of the most outspoken and constructive advocates for reforming the foster care system for two decades. Not true. He came in and out of the advocacy whenever it served him. Later in the obituary, it again mentions, quote, Mr. Alaverdian's two-decade war on DCYF and how he spent 20 years in the House of Representatives. He did not. He didn't. I'm just, oh God, this is so enraging. Uh, The obituary said that he, quote, was admitted to and became an alum of Harvard University. Again, a lie. His time at Harvard was described as, quote, the most peaceful and intellectually invigorating four years of his life. Again, he took a single extension course uh, at a school that is not technically Harvard. So uh, the obituary referred to Nicholas as, quote, a fighter in spirit, but a peacemaker in practice. Oh, boy. Which is a terrible way to describe a man who has several arrests for violent offenses. (laughs) So many. So, so many. many. Yeah. The obituary also described Nicholas as a warrior, a beloved community leader, and selfless. This thing was such an overall gag fest that at one point I was convinced it was going to claim he was the greatest lover of all time <laughs> with a dick that should be measured by the Guinness Book of World Records. Thankfully, it didn't. But it was all such obvious bullshit that I was immediately annoyed. The carefully crafted obituary also mentions the names of many well-known political leaders and professors, and yet does not name Nicholas's wife or their children because they don't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't even make up a name for them. But anyhow, then it would be easier for us to find out there was no birth certificate or wedding certificate. So I guess it was smart not to do that. But what a fucking dink. Anyhow. So, speaking of his widow, a woman named Louise called a church in Rhode Island asking for a memorial mass to be held in her husband's honor. She asked if it was possible to hold the memorial, even though Nicholas had already been buried in Switzerland. (laughs) Which is weird, because that top-notch obituary 
stated that Nicholas's remains were, quote, cremated with his ashes scattered at sea. <laughs> so were his ashes scattered at sea or was his body buried in Switzerland? Which is it? You'd think his wife would know. Uh, Father Healy, who spoke with Louise, said she was a strange woman who, quote, sounded like Hyacinth Bouquet, which is a beautiful reference to the delightful 90s British show Keeping Up Appearances. Father Healy agreed to handle the memorial, saying he would handle music and the readings. Louise then sent numerous emails requesting very specific music, and eventually she sent out invitations through Facebook to every previous and current elected official in Rhode Island. But before the service could be held, it was canceled when the police informed Father Healy that Nicholas Alaverdian was not dead. <laughs> so if Nicholas did not die, what happened to him? In January 2020, Canadian vegan food writer Nafsika Antipas was looking to expand her brand into the UK. This included her A&E show Plant-Based with Nafsika, as well as her line of vegan cheese called Nafsika's Garden. She went through resumes on the website Upwork, where she came across a freelancer who went by the name Nicholas Brown. His credentials claimed that Nicholas had been educated at Harvard and that he had previously worked on a TV project with Gordon Ramsay. They spoke on the phone and Nafsika said he seemed smart and since his ratings on the site were high, she hired him. But four months later, despite being paid nearly $40,000, Nicholas had not presented Nafsika with any actual work. She sent him a text. I have the text for you to show how reasonable it was. Her text said, and I quote, I spoke to my accountant today, and we agree that under the circumstances, I cannot continue paying you your fee until you have shown me your work. I've paid you a total of almost $40,000 in the past four months, and by now you are supposed to have raised sufficient funds for the TV show and other projects we had discussed. I understand things can't take off overnight, but I believe four months was sufficient time to see real results. I still expect to see your marketing and budget plan. I do hope you understand the situation as it is and look forward to our continued collaboration. I feel like that is a very adult, calm, rational text to send. Of course. Nicholas responds with, quote, raise sufficient funds for the TV show do you mean the program I'm currently working with the insurance company to get or the with the insurance company on to get your money back? I'll wait for you to wake up so we can talk about this before I, I reply to your nonsensical comment. Even though that message clearly stated he was going to wait for her to wake up because she's in Canada. I believe she was in uh, Quebec and he was over in the UK. So quite a time difference. So he said he was going to wait. He waited 22 minutes. <laughs> he then sent a second text that said, quote, absolutely appalled by your comments, but I will give you the benefit of the doubt and we can speak when it is morning there. But I am absolutely appalled. He then waited two minutes before he sent another text, quote, I will be happy to show you my work. 
I am shocked, appalled uh, that you would insinuate that I've done nothing for you. We are on the brink of massive online sales with a correlating PR campaign on two continents. And here you are patronizing me and telling me I've done nothing. And finally, a minute later, he sent a text asking her to call or to text him when he woke up. So it seems like he's angry and just repeating himself, which is something liars do when they get confronted. Nefsika said that Nicholas then demanded an entire year's salary and sent her a list of things he would do to her if she didn't pay. Jesus. Uh, these things include publish a website that called Nefsika a fraud. It included using her passport photo uh, to make it look like it was a mugshot. When Nafsika refused to pay him, Nicholas repeatedly called her parents, threatening to sue both Nafsika and her father's company. Nicholas told her, quote, you have no clue who you're dealing with. Settle or your company and brand will be destroyed. End of story. When asked about Nafsika, Nicholas later says, quote, as far as I was concerned, we separated on good terms and there was no animosity. No animosity. Mm-hmm. Okay. When the police refused to take her seriously, Nafsika hired a private investigator who determined that Nicholas Brown did not exist, and the real Nicholas was a con man who was being sought by both the Utah police and the FBI. Both worked with Interpol, trying to determine Nicholas's current location when they discovered he'd been living in Glasgow. But when police arrived at the house in December 2021, Nicholas wasn't there. But his wife was. Uh-huh. On February 22nd, 2020, one week before the death of Nicholas Alaverdian, Nicholas Brown married a woman named Miranda Louisa Knight at St. Mary's Parish in Bristol. According to Miranda's brother, Kevin, Nicholas had no friends or family at the wedding, and on the certificate, he left the name and occupation of his father as unknown. Nicholas claimed he was an orphan from Ireland who had been adopted by a couple in London, where he lived for over a decade before meeting his wife. Although he doesn't remember when he was adopted, and he has no birth certificate to back any of this up. Nicholas claims he met Miranda in an art museum in London in 2011, and the pair were friends before reuniting several years later. In June 2021, Miranda and Nicholas moved to Glasgow because Nicholas claimed he was given a job as a professor at the University of Glasgow. He was not. But by this point, he, has no long, he was no longer going by the name Nicholas Brown, according to Miranda. Nicholas suffered night terrors about being bullied over his name, so a psychiatrist advised him to use a combination of Nicholas's middle name and Miranda's last name. So Nicholas Brown started going by Arthur Knight. And yes, to be clear, I did say when Nicholas Alaverdian died, he was not married. And I stand by that because when he got married... As he in a week before his supposed death, he got married under the name Nicholas Brown. 
So Nicholas Alaverdian was not illegally married at the time. I also don't think they're currently legally married because he's not Nicholas Brown. <laughs> I just can't. Oh, my God. <sighs> but I don't buy most of the shit going on with this man. But night terrors about being bullied about the name Nicholas Brown. Nicholas and Brown are both very common names. What would be the reason that someone would bully him over it? And I would love to know, does that psychiatrist exist? Because I would love to talk to them if they did. Clearly, the name change was Nicholas's way of hiding his true identity. And yes, I know he goes by Arthur now, but I refuse to call him that. So I'm going to continue to call him Nicholas, partially because I think it would piss him off. So, police located Nicholas's wife. But where was Nicholas? He was in room 12 at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, suffering from pneumotitis brought on by COVID-19. He had checked himself into the hospital in October and ended up being so sick that he was placed in a medically induced coma, which from what I can tell is the only real thing that man has ever experienced. Right. On December 13th, a police constable went to the room of Arthur Knight, told him that he was being held on suspicion of being a wanted man named Nicholas Rossi, and he was read his rights. But Nicholas claimed not only was he not Nicholas Rossi, he'd never been to the United States before. But it turns out Arthur had gone by 16 different aliases, including Timothy Knight Brown, Nicholas Arthur, and Nicholas Brown. And not only were his fingerprints a match to Nicholas Rossi, but he also had some of the same tattoos as Rossi. When Nicholas Rossi was arrested in 2008, photos of him and his tattoos were taken by the police. The tattoos were very distinctive. Included the crest for Brown University on his upper right arm, a large angel wing, which kind of looks more like the top of a Mario Kart shell. Um, There was also an anchor and what appears to be possibly a barcode and two others on his left arm. My question is, why would you claim to go to Harvard when you have a Brown University tattoo? I just wrote that down. (laughs) Did you even attend Brown, Nicholas? Because I have not found anything online that places you there. And why not then just lie and say you went to Brown? It's a good school. Like, there's no cohesion in the lies. I just love that you said that as I literally finished writing that exact same sentence. Oh, it's madness. Just keep it streamlined. You can't even keep your story straight, my dude. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. I also am like, if you have trouble remembering the lies, turn into memento. Tattoo them on your body. What school did I go to? Oh, yeah. Brown. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I just, I can't. I can't. But look, just because I couldn't find anything that specifically linked him to Brown University, aside from the tattoo, maybe for some, maybe he did go there for a brief time. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one, but barely. I mean, we know he went to a community college. That we know for sure. But for some reason, yeah. he never told anybody that, nor did he tattoo that on his body. Correct. Just offering that. Correct. Oh, 100%. I'm just trying to be nice because I. That's I'm, nice. I mean, I feel bad 
uh, feeling so much anger towards a person. No. But that's just my anxiety disorder. But but if Arthur was not really Nicholas Rossi, then he should have no problem proving he doesn't have the exact same tattoos. It turns out that there were a lot of the same tattoos in the exact same locations on both men. However, the tattoos on Arthur's left forearm were gone, and there was nothing but some scarring. According to Nicholas's ex-wife, Catherine, in 2015, Nicholas was in the process of having some of his tattoos removed. So if Arthur is not Nicholas Rossi, then how does he explain the tattoos or the matching fingerprints? Well, according to Nicholas, while he was in a coma, a hospital employee named Patrick put the tattoos on him and sent his fingerprints to the Utah District Attorney so that Nicholas could be framed. Which is another page from the con man book when you can't explain something, call it a conspiracy. The idea that someone tattooed a coma patient to frame him for a crime from another country is insane. Especially when Arthur and Nicholas Rossi have the exact same face. <laughs> it's, it's enraging. I'm shocked he didn't try and claim that someone removed his face and replaced it with the face of a real bad guy. It, like in the 1997 cinematic adventure Face Off. He was too busy in 1997 watching Contact, I guess. Maybe he missed that one. But when you look at pictures of Nicholas Alaverdian, Nicholas Rossi, Nicholas Brown, and Arthur Knight, they all look the same. The only difference with Arthur is he has different glasses and he parts his hair on the opposite side. <laughs> That's it. When he arrived at the courthouse, he was dressed in an elaborate three-piece suit and used an electric wheelchair, which sounds a lot like when he was in court for the 20, 2008 attack on Mary Grabinski when he showed up in a three-piece suit and used a cane for a limp that seemed to come out of nowhere. Ugh. But this Nicholas claims he can't walk because of COVID and he requires an oxygen tank. And while it seems that the oxygen mask is just a way to further conceal his identity, it's a clear mask! We can see through it! We can see you have the exact same nose, chin, and jawline as Nicholas Rossi. We are not blind. We've used our eyes. We can see it, you dumb shit. <laughs> I told you before we did this that this was going to get spicy. I'm just... Oh, I'm living for it. <laughs> it's just... It's preposterous. And I can't... I just can't. The fact that he thinks he's fooling anybody. Ah, oh, so... You're probably thinking the same thing I was. If you want to prove you're not a specific person, why not offer a DNA sample? Nicholas has refused. Oh, I wonder why. I know, it's weird. <laughs> uh, I've read from multiple sources that they did manage to get a sample from him and it was a match. <laughs> but of course, he says it's all a conspiracy created by former Utah District Attorney David Levitt, who is trying to pin the crime on Nicholas. And to that I say, grow up! I'm just so You've been this. made, dude. Like, I at know. this point, you've been made. Like, yes. the DNA doesn't lie. The idea that someone would triple, quadruple down on this, this is what, again, for me, this is why I, I was fascinated by this, because it's yeah. unprecedented. 
It's also, uh, why and how would a police unit in Utah find and use a man from Scotland for the one case they, they think they've solved? Why? Yeah. If they were going to pin it on somebody, they'd pin it on somebody local. Yeah. So they didn't have to fight the courts to get the guy back. Well, also, you're making, yeah, it's a real journey. But also, what is this technology? Like, look, I'm, I know I'm jumping ahead because we usually talk about this at the end of the show. But I just have yeah. to say, like, what is the technology that we're dealing with? Like, you know, for what crimes really? Like, not to be a, a dark, but we know, traditionally speaking, like, it's it's very hard to get like lasting convictions. He never even did any jail time for his assaults. You know what I mean? I like, why would all of a sudden the FBI be like, "This is the day we make an example out of somebody"? <laughs> like, it's just insane. And yep. the, the image to me also of what would have to go into the hours that would have to go into tattooing a coma patient. Like, yep. where's the equipment coming from? The noise from the tattoo uh, gun, yeah. the fact mm -hmm. that like all of the staff would have to have been paid off in this uh, amazing grift where it was like, hey, we're going to need access to the body for the next six hours to place some very specific tattoos. Like mm -hmm. they're just the levels to this in the grand scheme of the world and the FBI and the CAA and everything they're they're capable of. Is it impossible? No. Is it improbable? God, Yes. <laughs> Right? Especially, yes. like, if they were going to go to that effort, it's going to be for, like, the largest crime of all time. Like, a guy who they've caught him, he's done 80 rapes, he's murdered a thousand people, they're going to take him down no matter what. This one guy? Where's the manpower coming from? Like, again, I just, I'm not saying that his crimes weren't horrible they were and i'm glad yep. that they were trying so hard to get him home and get justice i'm glad about all of that but suggesting that the the police would go to the level of tat putting intricate tattoos on a coma patient is so far from reality <laughs> oh i i would love to meet this patrick who allegedly put the tattoos on him because i have a lot of questions i just want to be like did you not give him a jello cup once? Like, what did you do that made him throw you under the bus, Patrick? Yeah, what was that about? Also, like, that'd be easy, so easy to, like, refute. Does he yeah. have tattooing experience? Does he have any tattoo supplies in his home or workplace? There's so many places I just can't. It's, that it's an, for me it's was lunacy. one of my absolute most batshit details was the idea that, no, no, it's not me. I just got tattooed in a very aggressive and extensive manner while in a coma. Come on. I I can't. It's lunacy. And the thing for me is also hundreds of rape kits were tested. And only one came back as a match to a known sex offender. If, for whatever reason, he needed a win. If David Levitt was doing this to pretend to solve a case. Why wouldn't he have done it to pretend to solve multiple? And claim there were multiple matches? Great point. Make it a huge success story. Look what he did. What a hero getting all these cases solved. 
as opposed to just one. And he went through the effort of, we're going to find a patsy. We're going to need to go to Scotland. Like, stop it. Stop. Stop it. So, and to be clear, if I thought that Nicholas was having some sort of mental health episode and truly believed the lies he was spewing, I would have compassion for him. But he's clearly just trying to put this insane spectacle on to avoid jail time. Therefore, I have no sympathy for him whatsoever. You conned and violated multiple people. You deserve to spend time in prison for that. Absolutely. But being accountable for his actions is not something that Nicholas Alaverdian has ever done. So it's no surprise that instead he has decided to just blame David Levitt for everything. When Levitt was up for re-election, Nicholas posted articles online claiming Levitt was involved in cannibalism and a sex trafficking ring. Nicholas also posted articles on his own website, Zeus News Now, with headlines such as, quote, Breaking news, David Levitt, David Levitt is confirmed to be head of criminal Utah cult. Come no, on. he was not. Uh, Levitt lost the election, which he blames on Nicholas's online harassment. In February 2023, David Levitt and his wife bought Knockderry Castle in Scotland, which is located about 90 miles or 145 kilometers from the prison where Nicholas currently resides. Some believe that Levitt bought the castle as a big fuck you to Nicholas but Levitt claims he and his wife have remodeled half a dozen houses and properties over the years, and they always dreamed of buying a castle. Levitt said, quote, it's not our first baseball game, but it's an entirely new league. The couple are restoring the property, which was originally built in the 1850s. They've been sharing their restoration journey on their blog, which I love the title, whatthehelldidwedo.com. <laughs> That's funny. It, yeah, it makes me laugh. Uh, after his arrest on December 13th, Nicholas attended a bail hearing via video from his hospital bed uh, on December 23rd, and he was released on bail a few weeks later. On January 20th, 2022, Nicholas failed to appear in court, so his bail was revoked and he was taken into custody. It is literally so easy to go to court. But again, he, he thinks he's above the law. I mean, we've already, they already said in the beginning that he was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder as a kid. And boy, oh boy, it was, uh, I would, I would corroborate that diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the ones who think they're above the law, you know? And yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that's all part of it. Again, like, thinks look, that he's smarter, thinks that he'll never actually get caught. Yeah. Yeah. It's people who think they're above the law. Um, and who think that they're better than everyone else. And the fact that I hold a grudge all combines to I am still pissed at Reese Witherspoon for that time she got pulled over for speeding and she said, don't you know who I am? I'm still mad at her for that. You fucking sped, Reese. Anyhow, it may have been her husband speeding, but it doesn't matter. Sure. Yeah, the point you're right. is you're right. The point it may is... have been him, but she was in the car, right? And she said, don't you know who I am? It's yes. like the passenger in a speeding vehicle. What I love on that recording, too, is you can hear her husband afterwards going, shut up. What are you doing? Shocking Don't those crazy kids help. couldn't make it work. Anyhow. Again, love Reese Witherspoon. But in that moment, oh, Reese. It, she, not her best day. No, 
No. And look, we all have bad days. But again, it's people who think they're above the law. Yep. Because they were in Sweet Home Alabama. Calm down. Anyhow. And to be clear, because I don't want to get accused of this, we're in no way insinuating that Reese Witherspoon has narcissistic personality disorder. No, God, no. It's just the fact of anybody thinking they're above the law. Yes. Because they think they're better than everybody else. And I, what I, the only thing I'll say in Reese's defense is she's never she's never fucked around that way before or since. Certainly. So you're you right. Know, so like I hope she said, learned something. I think it was probably a very, very embarrassing, <laughs> terrible moment in her life. So and she's learned from it. And yeah. that's good for her. <laughs> I don't mean to come for Reese. I just again. Stop it. The I law, you, no one is above the law. No. Even the law. Oh, I haven't even yelled about police yet. I'll yell at it, them later. You know what? I'm going to say episode. it right away. Th- because I did this in a recent episode, too. There was some damn good police work that happened in this case. <laughs> yeah. Not, not in, you know, not perfect in all the ins and outs of all the different sure. cases, but certainly in them being like, no, we are going for this person and making it happen. Always like to give a shout out when we see something positive happening. Yeah. Happening. See, there we go. So... After a three-day hearing in November 2022, it was ruled that Arthur Knight was indeed Nicholas Rossi. He remains in prison while awaiting an extradition hearing. The hearing was originally scheduled for March 23rd, but has been rescheduled for June 26th. Fingers crossed that Nicholas doesn't find any more ways to postpone the inevitable. Nicholas applied for bail in January 2023 because he claimed he was being bullied by fellow inmates. I wonder why. He said, Hmm. quote, I've been bullied on a daily basis. I've been kept in my cell 24 hours a day. This includes singing the song Leaving on a Jet Plane. Ah, too bad it wasn't the end credits to the movie Contact. (laughs) I won't let that go. Uh, His bail request was denied. And honestly, maybe he is getting taunted, but I just don't believe that those inmates know or care who Nicholas is. I really don't. But it's a classic page out of the Aliverdian playbook. Play victim. Well, and again, this is a man who's consistently like gone to the press at different points in his life. So he's also been setting it up that then the press is going to have a vested interest when there is an oh. insane faking of your own death, pretending to be another person story, guess what? It's going to be on their radar because you put them on their radar, put yourself on that radar for that long, that therefore, I feel like if these inmates are up on the news, then yeah, it's going to get to them. And by the way, is is I can't think of a more kind of gentle ribbing than singing, <laughs> leaving on a jet plane because he's going to get extradited. Like what a British uh, way to taunt somebody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to really hurt my feelings? Bring up John Denver. Yeah. (laughs) That's how you're going to get me. He's a treasure. A treasure. What it just. Oh, God. This whole thing. Uh, So if he was saying I've been beaten, I've been, you know, had these terrible things happen to me. No, it's literally like they sing at me. They sing a beautiful song to me (laughs) by by America's treasure, John Denver. Remember when he sang with the Muppets? It doesn't matter. Get back to it. (laughs) What I like is you're bringing that up. What a beautiful thing. And I yelled about Reese Witherspoon. And I'm going to feel bad about it till the end of time. Again, I adore Reese Witherspoon. She does. I, she genuinely does. I do. I do. Um, 
And look, uh, it's, I don't need to explain myself. You the don't. Point it's is, fine. It's fine. She's grown as a person, and I love that for her. Love to see that, Therese. <laughs> Thank you so much. God, what I wouldn't have given to have you and John Van Denver be able to do what it. a duet it would be. Yeah, yeah. So if we're going to talk about this case, we absolutely have to talk about the Dateline episode that brought it to our attention. In Dateline's Dead Man Talking, which aired April 22nd, 2023, which is one of the fastest we've ever gone from seeing it to putting it on this show. Uh, Arthur Knight and his wife, Miranda, sat down for an interview with Andrea Canning. If you haven't seen the interview, it is worth a watch <laughs> because Nicholas is completely unhinged. Again, if I thought this was a mental health episode, I would have compassion, but this is clearly just a liar trying to avoid the consequences of his actions. Nicholas says, quote, we were once a normal family, but thanks to the media, our lives have been interrupted, and we'd like privacy. I would like to go back to being a normal husband, but I can't because I can't breathe. I can't walk. People say that's an act. Let me try and stand up. And that's when he does this over-the-top gesture of trying to stand up before falling back into his chair, which is somehow supposed to prove to the audience that he can't walk. Nicholas, it has proven nothing. It's proven nothing. Also, I don't feel like you've ever been a normal husband, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. Uh, and yet during uh, a visit to the hospital, Nicholas became enraged when they told him he was going to be released because he was using that hospital visit very clearly to uh, postpone court proceedings. Uh, and according to a doctor and a nurse, Nicholas got off the gurney and lunged at them. They said, quote, he was inches from our faces and we were utterly terrified. So is it possible the whole inability to walk is just for show? Absolutely. Because I put nothing past this creep. And that's where we're at. Yeah. Weasel. Anyhow, in the Dateline interview, when Miranda speaks, she closes her eyes for long periods of time, which could just be a natural thing she does, but it also could be an indicator of someone who is lying. Miranda says, quote, if he was a serial rapist, I would know. And while I'm convinced she does know, it's more than possible she had no idea. Everyone believes they know their partner more than anything. But how many people have discovered their partner has a relationship or another family that they had no idea about? And what about the serial killers who ran rampant decades ago and their spouses who had no idea? Paula Dietz, the wife of killer BTK, had no idea he brutally murdered 11 people over the course of their 34-year marriage. So for Miranda to say she would know simply because they'd been married for three years? Please. Also, spouses often lie for each other. So you claiming he isn't a bad person is not concrete evidence that he's a good person. The entire interview, I just kept screaming, do a DNA test, you coward. <laughs> That's where I'm at. He's infuriating to watch. He answers questions with questions. He acts confused and then claims innocence. He's quick to show emotion, whether it's just rage or or full crocodile tears, but that's why men are always in charge, because they're more solid emotionally than women. Of course. Mm. And then there's his choppy-ass accent. 
Remember? I just wrote that down. We're on the same wavelength today. I literally wrote down also his accent. Yep. Continue. Yep. Uh, remember, he claims he was Irish born, but he was living in England for over a decade. When Nafsika Antipas spoke with him, she said he told her he was Irish, but he definitely spoke to her with a British accent. When asked about her husband's accent, Miranda said, quote, the Irish is still there. You do tend to take on accents where you live. You end up, I believe, with a hybrid accent. And when his accent was questioned in court, Nicholas, who has an answer for everything, said that his accent sounded inconsistent because of the lack of oxygen he suffered during COVID, changed his speech. Sir, we were not born last night. Come up with better lies, man. <laughs> I just, Even, I don't, could COVID change the way you speak? Maybe. I could buy that. Is sure. it going to change your accent? I, I don't know. think so. It could change the tone, the timbre of your voice. Maybe you sound more gravelly than before or out of breath. Is it going to give you an accent that no one can place? Absolutely not. One that can't stay consistent for one single interview? No. It's no. also very muddled. Like, it's also, like, it's not a great British accent to even begin with. Like, no. it's, yeah. I also can, I'm just realizing in this moment, I cannot believe he hasn't tried to use COVID as, well, that's why my DNA matched, because COVID changed my DNA. I can't believe he well, hasn't used it. Well, wait for the trial. Yep, wait for it. Yep. Can't wait for that. Dumbass. <laughs> Any. <laughs> uh, still. Uh, but while I am confident that Arthur Knight is really Nicholas Rossi, the big question becomes, how much did Miranda know? Is it possible she genuinely had no idea about his past until it came out after his arrest? Is it possible she's another victim of a controlling con man? Sure. But to this day, she publicly stands by him, saying it's all a case of mistaken identity. Miranda says, quote, I think a big part of being married to someone is you know their characteristics. There is absolutely no way he could do that to another woman. I trust him. I love him. Again, to my point, people who, people who often hide secrets tend to be very good at hiding secrets. Miranda's brother, Kevin, says at first, Nicholas was very polite, a caring person, and a church person. But now, Kevin believes Nicholas is a master manipulator who has Miranda under a spell. So it's possible Miranda has been going along with this ruse because she truly believes him, or maybe it's simply out of fear. But something I find interesting is that it is believed Miranda was the woman who called Father Healy in Rhode Island to organize Nicholas Alaverdian's memorial. The fact that she said her name was Louise and Miranda's middle name is Louisa is not lost on me. Nicholas's father, Jack, passed away in December 2021. He was about 66 years old. His mother, Diana, is alive but is choosing to live a quiet life under another name. Nicholas's ex-wife, Catherine Heckendorn, still resides in Ohio, and she is a happily married mother of one. Good for her. Good for her. Miranda's brother, Kevin, 
who believes his sister is innocent in all of this, denies any involvement in Nicholas's company, Veritas Cube Limited, which was founded in December 2018. Company documents list Miranda Knight as director and person with significant control of the company, and her brother Kevin as secretary and director. Kevin was removed as secretary in April 2020, and the entire company was dissolved in June 2021. Again, Kevin had heard nothing of this until it was brought up to him. It sounds to me like someone was setting up another con that just didn't work out. Yeah. Allegedly. I don't know what Nicholas Alaverdian went through in his childhood, but I have compassion for the struggles that he potentially went through while in foster care. And I was impressed when he tried to make something of himself and advocate for better foster care conditions for children. But this guy went from looking like a political hopeful to looking like a comic book villain. The small round glasses, the slicked back hair, and a full elaborate set of pajamas in court further emphasize what a ridiculous, pathetic, and unhinged individual that Nicholas Alaverdian has devolved into. Normally, while writing notes for this show, I try and be as neutral as I can so I can give all the information in an unbiased way so our listeners can make their own minds up about what they believe or don't believe. But this time, with a repeat offender who has spent decades conning people out of money and taking advantage of innocent people, I hit my limit. As someone who has personally been in the situation where an absolute snake of a human has taken advantage of their good nature, it burns me to see it happen to anyone else, so I look forward to his extradition to the United States, and more so to his trial and his hopeful conviction once he gets there, reporting for True Crime and Cocktails. I'm fucking heated, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Yep. I could this, not love this This man's more. done it. Yep. That's yep. it. That's it. Yep. Oh, listen, let's take yep. one more quick break, <laughs> grab another drink, hit the can one more time, and we're going to come back to wrap it up with this rage fest about the Dateline <laughs> episode, Dead Man Talking. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we're discussing the Dateline episode, Dead Man Talking. Before the last break, Christy finally broke. And uh, (laughs) to be honest, I'm shocked it took her that long. Shocked it took her that long. Um, Oh, my God. So many things to talk about. To go back to the very beginning, which we recorded last night, technically, 
<laughs> what I love was, again, I have to remind you of the quote from the obit, fear not and run towards the bliss of the sun. I just cannot. Uh, I wrote in my notes, and I quote, come on. There is no way that as he was dying, he thought to come out with like a like a solid quote. No. Like there's no chance that that was his dying breath. No. Fuck off. I know. It's such delusions of grandeur. Um, <clears throat> to get serious for a quick second, because I was curious about this. Uh, you mentioned that his mother, Diana, that her brother, Nikki, was found, unfortunately, hanging in their basement after imitating something he saw uh, on the Johnny Carson show. And, yeah. And that, that NBC got in trouble for it. My question is, is it possible that that could have been the origin of the, the saying, please don't try this at home? Because you'll notice that that's used quite often over the past... 20 years or more. Sure. Maybe 30, maybe more. I don't know. But that's just what struck me when you were telling me that. I was like, I wonder if that was the reason. Because I believe you said that NBC ended up being found not accountable. But I could see, um, I could see that that being the kind of catalyst for that kind of phrasing being used more often. Um, oh, 100%. As a setting precedence. Anyway. Yeah. Um, okay. Yes. So as a kid, he had uh, an ADD diagnosis and a narcissistic personality diagnosis. Um, as somebody who also has has an ADHD diagnosis, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I don't know if that's what drove him to any of this madness. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and listen, I also want to make it clear, not everyone with narcissistic personality disorder is going to go on to do bad things. That is not necessarily the case. We know that there are psychopaths or people that that pass the psychopath, quote, test that then go on to do jobs like being a politician or a surgeon, these kinds of jobs that require those traits and that obviously having those kinds of traits are helpful for. So I want to make that very, very clear. That being said, as we talk through this whole thing, there is abs this man is he is the poster child for an untreated, uh, out of control narcissistic personality disorder, in my opinion. All of the traits are there. Thinking that you're smarter than everybody. Thinking that you can out outwit the police. Hiding in plain sight. It's, it's so extreme. Now, the other thing that I will say is we know that personality disorders exist because you experience some sort of trauma in your childhood and your brain and psyche crack in order to try and protect you. So I also want to say, to be fair, I'm very curious what actually happened to him in his childhood. If we are to believe, again, not a licensed professional, so we are just speculating here, uh, which is what we do on this show. But I'm very curious if that diagnosis is correct, what did happen to him? And you mentioned that at the end of the episode, and I am also curious about that because it just feels like he has so many of the traits. And if that's true, is it, was it his, his biological father? Was there something that happened there? Was it a, a living in a, a house of horrors? The unfortunate thing is that when someone proceeds to lie and cheat and steal and abuse and assault, it becomes difficult to then trust anything that they're telling you and know what the truth is. So I highly doubt that we could ever truly know 
what it is that caused him to be this way. But the bottom line is, as always, that just because he has this diagnosis potentially doesn't excuse any of the behavior because other people can have the exact same condition and not do the things that he did. So just an important reminder, in my opinion, again, that having that kind of um, diagnosis does not mean that you're then again going to go and commit crimes in any way, shape, or form. This is just how he chose to live his life. Um, I think the thing that's also building on that is his MO never changed. It was the same from the beginning. He was feeling like he had an entitlement to these women's bodies, feeling like he had an entitlement to their money, and then doing the same kind of behaviors over and over and over again. Now, as Christy has pointed out, which is important to remember, women, statistically speaking, don't report sexual assaults because they are typically not taken seriously. And I need to give a shout out to Mary who was the person who spoke up and her life, I'm sure, was a living, breathing hell. This man continued to come back and sue her, putting her through all of this. And it's sad to me that we unfortunately live in a system where that can happen, that this woman very bravely at her own peril spoke up about what he did to her, how it happened, And she was unfortunately repaid by having to go through years of litigation with this madman. Again, I wonder why other women don't feel comfortable speaking up. Either they won't be believed or in this case, especially they fear the repercussions, the backlash and potentially getting some sort of retaliation from their um, assaulter. And she did. And I just I have to say, like, that's not easy. And boy, oh boy, I'm sure it made her life an absolute hell. But if she hadn't done that, who knows how long this behavior would have continued. Um, it would have gone even longer, potentially, before he could have been caught. Um, now, again, when he was then charged and then didn't do any jail time. Of course, I would also suggest that perhaps if he did jail time, we could have sh- saved a bunch of these other victims. But then that's me thinking that sex crimes should be met with actual punishments. Uh, Call me crazy, but I come from that school of thought. Uh, We've just talked about it so many times on this show where, again, if someone was put into prison at the time that they were charged and convicted, uh, that it can save future victims. We just see it again and again and again, and that it just drives me crazy. Um, Okay. (laughs) My dude. Amazing. Uh, I think the other thing, too, is that it is very sad that it felt like he early on was trying to use his experience to become this child welfare advocate to, you know, kind of advocate for changing in the foster care system. But then when you look at the bigger picture and you see that he just kind of abandoned that eventually to go after this uh, Community Progress Institute trying to revitalize Dayton, it then starts to become evident that it's like, was he altruistic with the things that he was doing before? Because from what I can tell, it seemed like he just wanted to do the things that were going to get him notoriety. Again, that's a speculation, but it just feels, unfortunately, that way to me when you look at the bigger picture. Oh, it absolutely feels like the only thing he wanted was fame and money to do and while doing as little as possible. Yes. He didn't want to work for it because I'm assuming something that happened in his youth made him feel like he was owed something. Well, yeah. And so he was going to take it from 
I mean, he was going to do what he needed to do and take it from whoever he needed to take it from. Yeah. And it's gross. Yeah. Grow the fuck up, man. The other pattern that I just have to point out is that he would always meet these women and very early on suggest that they get married. So there's absolutely got to be this love bombing phase, which was then inevitably followed by him turning and becoming a different person. And as someone who spent years not even knowing what the term love bombing was, I can personally commiserate with this and just put out there to anyone listening that if if you are in a situation that feels like maybe this is too much from this person, chances are it probably is. We all know we can feel it in our guts, but we are taught, especially a lot of women are taught to ignore our instincts. Um, trust your gut. Always trust your gut. Trust it. Trust yeah. it. Always, always. Gotta just yeah. put that out there. Um, something that stood out to me. He wore disguises to avoid getting served divorce papers. That, to me, shows a pattern of behavior. Because even though, yes, I agree with you, it's not like his 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 Arthur Knight look was really, you know, such a disguise. But it just speaks to someone who is comfortable in putting on different costuming or whatever to avoid getting in trouble for the crimes he committed, which to me sets, yep. shows a pattern of behavior that it's like, well, you've shown before that you were willing to do this kind of thing. Um, so why wouldn't you do it again? Uh, oh God, so many things, so many things. It's just, he's such a fascinating study. Uh, when you said the obituary was full of lies, it reminded me of the Simpsons moment at the dentist when they were like, have you been flossing? Don't turn this into a house of lies. lies. I haven't thought about that in years. Um, also, uh, I just want to give a shout out to you using the term gag fest. That really got me. <laughs> really again, got me. yet again, something written in my notes. Yep. That even as I, re- as I was reading it, I was like, I don't recall writing that, but away we go. I because again, I'm already it. researching the next one. So I'm deep into something else. So it just is what it is. Of course. Of course. Um, I mean, this David Levitt stuff, the fact that he accused this man of cannibalism and sex trafficking and it potentially cost him that election my god oh but i also to accused say- david levitt's wife oh of well. course of course yep. sure thank you very much yep. i also just wanted to say piggybacking on that um nefsika when she was looking to hire him it's just it feels so obvious that he had adjusted his profile to suit her so, for example, saying that he had worked on a Gordon Ramsay show, he knew that Nefsika yeah. was in the culinary world. It feels like he targeted her and that he was creating something to make it look like he could provide what she specifically needed, which yeah. also the fact that she was a woman, just going to put it out there. This man has a pattern with some horrific behavior towards women. It just feels he like does. it wasn't that he just put up a fake profile to see who or an exaggerated profile to see if he got any bites. It feels to me like he sought her out and then made a profile that he thought would be impressive to her. Um, Because again, we know that he apparently is this IT genius who can manipulate all these things. So the fact that he said he had so many good reviews, it's also possible he faked all of those. He had to have. Right? Had to have, right? I I mean, I would think so. Um, Again, all of it is just so chilling. The fact also that she wasn't believed by the police, so she hired a private investigator, and then that private investigator determined, oh, wait, no, Nicholas Brown doesn't exist. That's not a human that exists. This is clearly someone else. Again, 
I know that I've given a shout out of a positive to the police in this episode, but I also now yep. have to go back on that a little and say, hey, if you'd believed her, maybe then, but mm-hmm. doesn't matter. It just, I love that it took this woman yeah. who was like, I'm not going to let this go. Much like Mary was like, I am going to step yep. forward. Shout out to these amazing women for yes. helping, you know, be a massive part of bringing this guy down, um, which I know we're technically still in the process of because he has not had yep. his uh, his official trial as of yet. The final thing I have to say, and this is the thing that, again, you could argue is the most wild of all, is... John Denver. <laughs> Why do the dateline? Why do <gasps> the dateline? That speaks to that it's like, this, it, it feels like this is a personality disorder. The fact that you've mm. taken it, like, like, and I know he was diagnosed as a child, but I'm just saying, I feel like if you're on the fence, like, ooh, maybe this is something else. No. This is, the only reason you do that is because you really, truly believe that you are above the law, that you are smarter, that you are going to get away with all of it, that you're going to hide in plain sight, you're going to fuck around yeah. with people, all these things. Because at this point, one would think, shit, I've been made, they know it's me. The DNA matches. He can say whatever he wants to say to justify it about this grand conspiracy he's apparently the target of. But mm-hmm. internally, right, The there's no – you're not clearing your name going on Dateline. Correct. The scene where he said, I'll show you that I can't walk, stood up and immediately went, oh, was one of the worst performances I've ever seen. And I've watched Biodome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No shade. No shade to Biodome. It was just the, the first thing that came to mind. That of was, course, you know. Of course. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, what possessed you to think that would be a good? This would be the time most people would go. Ah, you know what? I had a good run, but I'm getting caught. We're at the edge. I'm not going to put myself out there. Not this guy. This guy yep. goes. I'm going to double, triple, quadruple, quintuple down, and I'm going to go on this thing and. Again, like Christy said, I cannot recommend enough if you haven't watched it. And we are not getting any sort of money from Dateline. Just know this. Nope. We don't work nope. with them. We're just fans of the product. Um, yeah. But that uh, interview is truly one of the most batshit things I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. To your uh, point of why would you do the interview, man, uh, I remind you of before uh, any sexual assaults, any alleged sexual assaults occurred um someone once referred to uh nicholas as like donald trump before he was president but in respect of meaning if you put a, if there's a camera he's going to be like i'll give you a statement absolutely i'll get my face in front of that camera oh you want to talk to me great let's do it and so i think they were absolutely right there and then when it comes to the sexual assault, I think we were even more right than that person realized. But it's absolutely, there's a camera. I'll talk to you. Yeah. Even though it's like you're digging your own grave, sir. Yeah. Doesn't care. Yeah. And I guess again, he thinks he's going to get away with it. He thinks he's so smart that he thinks he walked away from that going like, well done. Oh, yeah. Well he's done. like, I proved to them I didn't walk. It's like, no, you didn't. No. You did not. No. It's I, what what's it going to take to get some sort of like 
whoever works for insurance companies that finds the guys that all say they can't walk because they got hurt at work and then they take pictures of them jet skiing and stuff, where are those guys to follow him around until they can get a photo proving or video proving like him on his feet walking around fine? Yeah. Like I just, I don't buy it. I can't wait for the update because I pray that it's going to be He's getting brought back to the States and he's going to have to have, he's going to have to actually genuinely go to court and pay for his crimes. That would be great. And the unfortunate All of the thing- crimes against women and the crime of trying to take money and successfully taking money from the foster parents. Oh, I know. Who took you in after you aged out. If he aged out, that means they weren't getting money for being your foster parents. They were just being good people. Yeah. Not that when you're getting money, you aren't good people. But you know what I mean? Like, they took you in as just good people. And you took advantage of it? What a piece of shit. Yeah. Piece of shit. (laughs) And shout out to foster parents out there. Because, God, that can't be an easy job. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. Listen, Christy Oxborough, this has been such a damn delight. I'm I'm sad that we got (laughs) cut off last night. But I'm yeah. excited that I got to to go on this journey with you twice because twice is is <laughs> twice as nice. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I I just knew how this would enrage you, and you did yep. not cease to um, make me giggle, make me full laugh, and also bring all the goods. So we thank you for your impeccable work as always. You are too kind. Uh, I do have to say, <laughs> you might not remember because it was yesterday, uh, but I made a comment about uh, something about a map of like missing people in the US and cave or um mines in the US and how they were very similar. I was quickly looking for it to make sure I could add it to the case file. Turns out it was caves. Oh, the locations of caves in the United States and missing people and it is shockingly similar. So, the conversation we had earlier about mine shafts, pretend it was about caves. <laughs> That's where we're at. <laughs> well, listen, yeah. here's what I like. We don't have to give yeah. you an update next week. She's caught it by the end of the episode, folks. <laughs> so hopefully if you were going to Google it, you waited until we were done talking because we gave you the truth now. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to. Well, now I've already saved it and put it in the thing to put it in the case file. And they'll be like, that's weird. I thought she said mines. And <laughs> if they get this far, they'll realize she caught it. <laughs> she caught it. it. It took her a day, but she caught it. But to you guys, it took me couple of hours <laughs> <laughs> i have so many more questions now then it's like how are they not should we just be searching ca- how deep are the caves like a lot of questions yeah, yeah a lot of questions but no time in the moment uh so we thank you dear listeners for coming with us on this truly chaotic batshit journey we're so glad that you're with us uh, it makes our hearts sing that you enjoy our, our uh, dumb, dumb content and uh, and also our hard-hitting uh, true crime coverage, which we uh, are so committed to. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails. Wow. And on Twitter at Not Detectives. Uh, if you'd like some more bonus content, go over to patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails to learn more about that. And the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Chris, do you, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Alex Murdoch.
We're going there, folks. So many of you messaged asking if we're going to cover it, and we're here. We're doing it. It's happening. Maybe uh, an extended bit of coverage. It may leak into two. Who knows? knows? I don't want to say too early. Of course, you never know. And as but but if you are familiar with that case, dear listeners, then you'll know that there is just so much to cover in that case. It is cuckoo bananas. Uh, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Bringing it back from last night. Welcome to round three, Carolina Hurricanes. (laughs) Yeah. Good night to the hockey players. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.